because we certainly don't want Kelly to show that in any way. All right, we are rolling, so whenever you're ready. All right, go. Well, welcome to Community Christian Church and Easter for Coweta. My name is Ed Martin, and I'm so thankful we're together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which ripped a hole in history, and it changed everything. Six weeks ago, when I was thinking about Easter and how to talk about it this year, I thought my most difficult part of the job would be to help you feel the despair that his followers had to feel when they heard him say it's finished as he hung on the cross on Friday. They'd hung on his every word for three years, and now they knew that even his last words had been true words. It was finished. All they hoped would happen, the purpose they had felt in their lives for three years of following this man, it was done, and they felt like they were finished. Six weeks ago, I thought you might hear me say those words but not feel it. You wouldn't feel what they felt, but that was six weeks ago. Since then, our world has changed, and we've learned about loss. Some of you know that today was supposed to be the last day of spring break trip that you'd been planning, and now that's lost. I think of student athletes who live for spring sports, how they worked out and they prepared, and that's finished. Just this last week, my heart's gone out to high school and college seniors and their families and the big plans they had for family celebrations as they walked to get those well-earned diplomas. But now, that may never happen. I have a friend who just performed this week his first Zoom wedding. Bride and groom in one location, the family's in another location, he was in another location, and they all got married, but... I think about wedding plans that have been changed, big events that you spent months planning, and now that big event has been downsized or it's done. And all of us know those aren't the biggest losses that people have felt in the last six weeks. Jobs, health, life. And sometimes when you have one of these lesser losses, you feel bad about even mentioning your loss. But we all know what may seem small to others still brings a feeling of loss to you. And if you linger on it for a minute, you can feel what you had hoped, it's gone. And there you are, right where the followers of Jesus were. All their hope for the future of their country, their hope for their future was gone, and, and they thought that maybe their lives would soon be over. But even though their hopes were crushed, we're told that a group of female followers, none of Jesus' guys were there, it had wrecked them too much. But the women... They went to the tomb as one final act of love and respect. And, and if you're with us and you, you aren't a religious person or you're not a church person or you used to be and you're just here today, I get how hard this resurrection thing is to grasp. But before I read it to you, I, I want you to get that it wasn't what they were expecting either. You know, more than you, even in the midst of this crisis, more than most of us will ever see, they'd seen people dying. Infant mortality rate in their world was high, and life expectancy was short. They knew what a person looked like when they died, and they saw him die. But here's what one of the eyewitnesses wrote about the event. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went outside to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel of the Lord spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. 
He isn't here. He's risen from the dead, just as he said was, would happen. Come and see where the body is lying. Famous psychologist Alfred Adler used to begin every session with a new client by saying the same thing. He'd ask, what's your earliest memory? And no matter what the client said, Adler would respond, and so life is. What he taught was our earliest memories create a lasting imprint on us, and they can create kind of a trend line or a storyline for our lives. I've told some of you before that for years my life was about doing what I wanted, how I wanted, when I wanted, and I really didn't care who I hurt. My earliest memory that I think is a preschool memory, or at least my sisters tell me it is, is of me being really sternly corrected by my parents because I'd gotten so upset with my sister that's just older than me that I hit her in the mouth with a hammer. And not a play hammer, I broke her teeth. Looking back on my life, turns out that that was not just a story. It was revealing a piece of my personality, which is probably way more than you wanted to know about a pastor today. So here's my question for you. What's the storyline of your life? I know there are all kinds of plots and subplots that we get drawn into, but what's the overarching story of your life? Do you know? What's the overarching interpretation of events and circumstances that provide you a way to see your life? I mean, we all have them. It's a pattern of beliefs about what I've done of what's happened to me that gives meaning to every experience I have. It's the great big story that ties all of my little stories together. Now, I want you to hold on to that for a minute. Let let me show you a photo. Do you, do you know who this is? This is Elon Musk. He's the founder of three billion dollar companies, not three billion dollar companies, but three companies that are each worth a billion. PayPal, Tesla, and something called SpaceX. If you ever go to the headquarters of SpaceX, you'll find two giant posters of the planet Mars. One's Mars as it currently is. It's a cold, barren, uninhabited planet. The other poster looks like this. This is Mars as Elon Musk envisions, a habitable planet that's been colonized by humans. This is Elon Musk's stated purpose in life, to colonize Mars. Now, I bet I'm not too far off in saying that for most of us, you aren't quite dreaming that big. Six weeks ago, most of us were just trying to make money and raise some kids to be somewhat civilized human beings that might wind up having Easter dinner with us one day that we can enjoy. Today, uh, for some of us, our biggest dream is just getting to go out to eat like it's normal again. And maybe if you're in high school, it's just to have the freedom to be away from your parents, to be with your friends again and, and not online. And if we could accomplish that, we'd feel pretty good about ourselves. I mean... Who dreams of colonizing a planet? And what story inspired that kind of dream? Arthur, author Mark Batterson shares this interesting theory uh, on that based on Musk biography. In 1950, Elon Musk's grandparents decided they'd move from Canada to South Africa. They'd never been to South Africa before. His grandfather disassembled a 1948 Valencia cruise airplane, put it in a crate, and shipped it to South Africa. When he and it arrived, he reassembled the whole plane, and in 1954, Elon Musk's grandparents flew 30,000 miles to Australia and back. Now, let me just put that into perspective for you. This is only 27 years after Charles Lindbergh made that historic flight across the Atlantic, and their flight 
It's almost 10 times longer than his. They are still believed to be the only private pilots to have ever done that flight in a single-engine airplane. So let's just connect the dots here. It's probably safe to say Elon Musk's dream of colonizing a planet wasn't conceived in a vacuum. Don't you imagine that young Elon heard the stories of his grandparents' adventure over and over and over the way that grandparents tell stories? Who dreams of shooting a rocket into space and colonizing another planet? Maybe somebody whose grandparents decided to pick up, move their family halfway around the world to another continent that they'd never been to before, and then fly a single-engine airplane 30,000 miles. That's who does that. Elon's father once said of Elon's grandparents, we were left with the impression we were capable of anything. You see, that story became more than a story to him. It became a storyline, or to say it another way, it became the lens through which he interpreted all the events, all the circumstances of his life. It provided a structure for the beliefs that gave his life meaning. So what does my bad teacher, temper, Elon Musk's grandparents, and Easter have to do with each other? Well, I know from many people that when it comes to that account that I read to you from Matthew 28 of the women going to the tomb, it's a great story, but it... It's just a story, right, that we tell on Easter and why there's Easter. It's an inspiring story, but for many of us, it's, it's like a meme on the Internet. It's cool, but it might be fake news. And we listen to it. It's a good story, but it's not much different than Tupac being alive in Vegas or, in my generation, Elvis living in Michigan. But here's what's true that I don't think most people get. For followers of Jesus, the resurrection account isn't just a story. It's... It's the storyline of life. It's the lens through which we interpret all events and all the circumstances of life. It's, it's the structure through which our faith makes sense. As I say every Easter, Christianity is unlike any other world religion, any other philosophy, because it's not about morality or ethics or even about God. Christianity is all about an event, the empty tomb. I heard someone say negatively about Christians years ago, they put all their eggs in the same basket, the Easter basket. And that's right. Nobody on that resurrection morning was walking around saying, hey, you know, Jesus taught love as enemies, or we ought to do good to others. Because when Jesus died, it died. All hope died. But when Jesus stepped out of the grave alive, it made clear to his followers that all things were possible. You might even say that they came to believe that they were capable of anything. Now, I know for many of you, believing in a person dying and then coming back to life by their own power is more than you can believe. I mean, the way our brains work, it's hard for our brains to grasp a miracle. And I'm not going to try to act like I can prove it to you by science because it's frankly not possible. But you can't disprove it by science either because you're using the wrong discipline of knowledge to try to even understand it. It either was or it was not an event that happened in history at a real point in time, and that can't be proven or disproven by science. You have to use the historical method. And I, along with billions of people, look at the evidence of history. There's no corpse ever produced, which is the fact that an empty tomb was never even disputed by anyone, even those who had Jesus executed in the first place. And at some point, you have to consider the evidence of 
How did this movement in Jesus' name grow from a small Jewish sect that followed a dead, they said resurrected, but from your point of view, a dead leader, who the only message history records that they shared about him was, they claim he was risen from the dead. How does a message that incredulous grow from so fast that in the scope of history, a few years, becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire who killed him? And two, 2,000 years later, it becomes the world's largest religion and the only world religion that has naturally moved across ethnic groups and geography. How'd that happen? I mean, put yourself back in the first century when the Romans ruled the whole world as you know it, and they're going to rule it for hundreds of years. I mean, the United States of America has been a superpower on the world stage for about a century now. The Romans did it century after century after century with no competitor. Imagine you're right in the middle of that and you're asked, what's the likelihood that years from now people will know the name of Jesus way more than they know any name of the Roman emperors? Would you bet that the only mention of Caesar in our world would be the name of a salad or cheap pizza? I'll say for me that more than 2 billion people today who profess to follow Jesus, we believe that by far the best explanation of how that happened is that as unbelievable as it sounds, and we know it does, there really was an empty tomb. And for us, this is not just a story. It's become our storyline. We're told and we've experienced that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in our lives, and it's changing us. The resurrection has reframed our reality, and it redefined possibility. I mean, in just the last few months at Community Christian, we've seen dozens of people get baptized, which is getting dunked underwater. Why? Because baptism's the starting point with Jesus, and it's a symbol of this storyline. A person takes their old life and is buried underwater, and that old life gets left there, and they rise to walk a new life with Jesus as the leader. See, every time, every time we're saying the story of Jesus' resurrection, it's not just a story. It's my personal storyline, and it changes everything. This idea that a change of thought can bring from a new story, can change everything, well, that's nothing new. Decades ago, uh, Richmond Mayo Smith said, the underlying cause of our difficulties may be that we're living the wrong story. He said, how you think, how you feel, how you behave, it's all a function of the stories that we tell ourselves. So he said, you want to change somebody's behavior? Don't try to change their behavior. You have to change their story. Some therapists call this cognitive reappraisal, which is just a High price word that simply means you got to tell yourself a different story. One of my hobbies is history. I particularly love the history of the world during and around World War II. A classic example of this, of what I'm talking about, happened near the end of the war in Europe at the Battle of the Bulge. Adolf Hitler's forces from Germany, they're mounting one last counterattack against the American forces surrounded in Bastogne, Belgium, and with all their supply lines cut off. The German commander, he demands immediate surrender. But General Anthony McAuliffe gathered his troops together, the 141st Airborne, and he said, men, we're surrounded by the enemy, which gives us the greatest opportunity ever presented to any army. We can attack in any direction. 
His troops fought, and when his response was relayed to the other Allied troops in the area, it turned the whole tide of the battle, and eventually it was the beginning of the end of the war. That didn't happen because they got better supply lines and they were reestablished or more ammunition was required. It was a work of cognitive reappraisal. Instead of telling themselves, hey, we're surrounded, we have to surrender, they told themselves a different story. We're surrounded. Here's our chance. This cognitive reappraisal is a function of focus, and your focus will determine and begin to shape your reality. That's why a follower of Jesus named Paul writes to a church that he started in the ancient city of Philippi, and he writes these words. He's in prison under the threat of execution, and he's instructing his followers how to pray and not to worry. So he says, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. It's so easy to get focused on the wrong things, isn't it? I mean, especially when life comes crashing in like it has on us and you lose hope. Despair begins to do its work in you. Cognitive reappraisal is a function of focus, but it's more than that. It's about the stories we tell ourselves. You just have to make sure you're telling yourself a right, true story. Now, just so I'm clear, I am not talking about the power of positive thinking. I'm not talking about some Jedi mind trick. I'm talking about what the original followers of Jesus called fixing your mind on him. See, they knew that Jesus had done what no one else had done. He'd conquered death in the grave, and he had promised them that the same power that did that work, it would be at work in them, and that he'd be with them. Even when they couldn't see him, he would be there for them. So they went everywhere telling that true story, and it changed the way they saw everything when their families turned against them, they saw it as evidence that God was at work and he'd bring about something good. When the government told them to stop, they didn't intentionally thumb their noses at the government and try to overtake the government. They quietly did what Jesus said to do. They loved their enemies. They did good to those who mistreated them, even as they were dying. So one writer of that era said about those who had given their life and how they'd done it in faith. And his encouragement to those of us that are, who are alive today is this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. And then you won't become weary and give up. Maybe what you need today is you need to tell yourself a better story about life. You need to take the true story that started at the cross and was completed at the empty tomb. And in those two you see the truth that God loves you and he gave himself for you and he has the power that he's made available to you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to change everything. But knowing that, even believing that's true, it's not enough. It can't just be a true story for you. 
See, I know that Kim Jong-un's the ruler of North Korea. I believe it with my whole heart. It's true. It has no impact on my life. It's just a true story. For many of you, that's the story of Easter. True, but no impact. It just, it's just something you know. This has to move from a story to a storyline. It's what Christianity is called confessing Jesus as Lord. That happens when you believe not that Jesus is Lord over creation. He is. Not that he's just Lord over death, which he is. But he's Lord over you. Which means you confess to yourself that Jesus is right. About what? He's right about everything. And because he's right, he has the right to rule over my life and my will. And I do what he says. And here's what he says about me and and you. You're a child of God. You're his workmanship created to do a good work in this world. You're more than a conqueror over this life. You're not condemned. You're not a mistake. You're not an accident. You're not a label. You're not a diagnosis. You are who God says you are. See, when those women that I read to you about earlier, when they were headed to the tomb, they were convinced they were trapped in God's ultimate tragedy. But when they went to the tomb and they saw it was empty, they realized it was not a tragedy. God had written a comedy. He was mocking death. Recently, I heard someone remind me of one of my favorite stories. It's been updated a little bit, but it's a story of a guy riding in an Uber from the airport. And he's headed a good long way from the airport. And for a long time, he and the driver ride in silence. At one point, he reaches up and he taps the driver on the shoulder. And the driver jumped and almost wrecked and When they come to a stop, the guy apologizes and said, hey, man, I did not realize that tapping you on the shoulder would throw you off so much. The Uber driver said, "Uh, it's my fault. I was daydreaming. I forgot where I was. See, my other job is driving a hearse. See, I think that the tap on the shoulder, it's what God's doing in the resurrection. I think it so shocked the first disciples that it changed everything for them. And what we're hoping today is that Easter is a chance for you to reconsider the storyline of your life and allow God to rewrite your story into his great story. See, Jesus didn't come to make bad people better. He came to make people trapped in a story that ends in death. People know who know that death isn't the end and that through his power, life takes on a whole new meaning. I'm praying that his story, it becomes your storyline. And if it does, It becomes the answer to everything. As you and I confess that he is Lord, he becomes our hope in life and death. So this is what I want to do to end my time today. I have something I want you to listen to. It's something I want us to experience together for about four minutes. For followers of Jesus, the words you'll hear are words that are at the core of our story. As you listen... If you prepared to celebrate the hope we have in Jesus by remembering him through the elements of communion, then you take them as we listen and as you worship. And if you're with us and you're not there yet, I mean, once again, can I just thank you for spending this time with us? And just so you know, you don't ever have to fake anything with God. You don't have to act like you believe something you don't believe. But here's what I want to ask you to do. Would you please take these few moments, these four minutes, listen to these words. Read them on the screen. Maybe take a chance to ask God if what we talked about, about what you heard in these last few minutes could go from storyline 
from the story to the foundation storyline of your life. Let's experience this together.